Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. We are coming to you live from the Iowa State Fair. Ooh, we're in Des Moines. <laughs> we're in Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa. It is my first time ever attending the Iowa State Fair. It's yours too, Kristen, right? It is my first time. I have been to state fairs before. I've, yes. I've been to a few in Illinois. Um, great time, and it has been nothing but a great time here today. Yeah, I'm like you all might be hearing some shouting children. <laughs> I'm literally watching right now this like slingshot thing where people get strapped in and fly into the air. Yeah. <laughs> it's a full-fledged fair atmosphere. I've eaten more fried food today than I've eaten in a very long time. Do you have a favorite food item that you've had so yeah, far? Yeah, no, I mean, you gotta, you can't go wrong with the one foot long corn dog, man. That has been the oh, only solid. thing really I've eaten today, but <laughs> it has been delicious. Um, there's also, you know, all of the butter, all the buttered things. All the buttered things. Um, I'm going to try some fried butter here later today, so I might have okay. to... to fix my my answer later but yeah yeah, yeah yeah i think so far my tops have been a f- deep fried oreo mm, that lived up to the expectation good. and the hype amazing and dill pickle cheese curds interesting very good the pickle flavor complements really nicely with the cheese i'm not surprised because yeah. it's the pickling you know the vinegar exactly. all of that fun stuff but it's a no, great combo so cheese curds are always great they're man. just great <laughs> best ones are from wisconsin i will say that but yeah they're always they're always a hit i love it <laughs> well we are not just here to eat fried food even though that's a great part of it i am Kristen's <laughs> <laughs> like yeah that's that's why i'm here <laughs> uh Kristen, remind us what is project 2025 and why do you all have a booth here at the Iowa State Fair. Yeah, I've probably pitched this uh, a thousand times today, (laughs) but uh, Project 2025, I've talked about it before, we're basically getting ready for the next presidential administration. We have created a policy playbook and we have a game plan for the first 180 days. A group of over 70 organizations have helped contribute to that. What we're working on right now is just the personnel aspect. We have a training academy, it's called the Presidential Administration Academy, and then we have a database, a lot like a conservative of LinkedIn. The difference is you're connecting to vetters that will then look at your background, look at what you're interested in and your skill set and get you connected with anything from the Department of Treasury to uh, the White House to NASA even. That's where I was put in 2018 in the Trump administration and it was so fun. We're trying to make sure that January 20th of 2025 if there is a conservative president in office that we hit the ground running and that we really just, you know, Get the right people in the right seats. Yeah, which is so, so critical to actually having a Washington, D.C. that is working for the American people and not against them. So, And right next to Kristen's booth with Project 2025 is the Daily Signal booth where we're telling all the fairgoers all about problematic women and the Daily Signal and what we do and why we do it. And really, what does it mean to be a conservative news site? So we're having a lot of fun here at the fair. And uh, for anyone who attended the fair this year... Give us a shout out on Instagram. We would love to hear about your favorite fair food. But because we are at the fair this week, we have a little bit of a unique show, a little bit of a different show planned. So I recently did a podcast interview with a very problematic woman named Carrie Gress. And Carrie is a mom and she works at the Ethic and Public Policy Center. She's a wife. She's authored about 10 books and her latest book is all about documenting the history of feminism and some of the roots of feminism that actually might surprise you like the fact that the feminist movement has some roots in the occult so we have a really fascinating conversation i spoke with her on the daily signal podcast and after we were done i was like oh my gosh 
all of our problematic ladies are going to love this podcast, this conversation. So we are bringing you that interview today. And after my conversation with Carrie Gress, then we are going to crown a very, very special problematic woman of the week this week. Who means a great deal to us? I am so excited for this one, guys. You just need to buckle up. It's, it's about to get real. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Well, enjoy the show. And remember, each week on Problematic Women, we sort the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Carrie Gress. Enjoy. It is my pleasure today to be joined by author Carrie Gress. She is author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about your new book. <laughs> my pleasure. It's great to be here. Well, you are a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You've authored 10 books. You're a wife. You're a mom to five kids. Talk a little bit about how you started researching and writing on the feminist movement. What sparked your interest? Yeah, you know, it's actually funny because when I was in graduate school, I swore I would never get involved in women's issues. I mean, I think I even <laughs> said it out loud. And so I still kind of laugh that it's something that I'm interested in. But one of the reasons why I didn't like it was I felt like I, 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 there was a lot of good content out there for women to sort of skirt around, uh, you know, the radical feminist movement. But so much of it was written very academically, and it was not anything that I could pass on to friends or family or to people that I knew that were really struggling with their their lives and lifestyles. And so anyway, it just was one of those things that just sort of came about. I just I started writing really about the very first one of the first books that I wrote on women was about motherhood and just how much motherhood transforms us. I think, you know, going from that experience of thinking that, you know, next week it's going to get easier with my my newborn. Next week will be easier. Next week will be easier. And then finally realizing like, wait a minute, it's just maybe it's not supposed to be easy. Maybe this is helping me become a better person through these trials and these all these things that are pulling me out of my own sort of narcissistic cocoon that I had created for myself. So mm. anyway, it's it's just been very gradual. But I, yeah, feminism itself, I, I really didn't intend to take it on until, you know, in, in this huge way I do with this book, until I started looking into first wave feminism. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard so many people say, you know, feminism was hijacked in the second wave. And so I was just expecting to sort of dig into the first wave and thought, well, it's just going to be all these really nice, lovely things about women and, you know, much purer understanding of womanhood. And I was just shocked at what I found because it was so different. And it was also so clear to me that what we're seeing in the second wave actually had its roots in the, the first wave. So that's really kind of the arc of, you know, how we got to this point. And I think that's one of the most surprising things that I found as I began reading your book was we hear so often 
this differentiation between the waves of feminism and how different they are. And when you started talking about kind of this through line through all of them, it was like, wow, that's so fascinating. So I, I want to dive deeper into that in a moment. But before we get to that, I thought it'd be helpful to just first define some terms and starting with, you know, feminism. When we talk about the feminist movement, when we say that word feminism for the purposes of our discussion, what do you mean by that? No, I think that's a fantastic question because it's it's used almost differently by every woman, I I think. And, you know, the one thing that seems to be kind of common is this idea that that feminism is you're pro-woman. The problem is, of course, is that what I mean by pro-woman is going to be very different than what Gloria Steinem means by pro-woman, and that's where things break down. So I, the definition that I work with now is really focused on three elements that are, I, I think, run through first wave, second wave. There are obviously going to be variations of this, and I'll go into those three in a second. There are going to be variations of it, and I think it's really incumbent upon people that still call themselves feminists to define what they mean, because these three are so pernicious. But the first one is free love, which is, I, you know, the end of monogamy and really the breakdown of the, the family. The second one is uh, what started out as called, being called restructuring society. It later was called smashing the patriarchy. And actually, Engels had something to do with that. It wasn't this wasn't just some feminist idea. In fact, a lot of these ideas could, did come from men. Hmm. So that's the other ones, smashing the patriarchy. And then the third one is just the involvement of the occult. So those are the three threads that I found running, you know, throughout the first and the second wave, and certainly we're seeing it now in the third and fourth waves of, of feminism. So that's what I, I mean by feminism when, when I'm using it in, in this context. Okay, that's so helpful. Thank you. Okay, so let's go all the way back then to the beginning of the feminist movement. And I, I love that you take us all the way back in the book to the 1700s, and you talk about a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. You say that she's, and by many, she's considered the first feminist. Who was she? And why is she really considered the start of the feminist movement? So Mary Wollstonecraft was a woman that she was very much involved with a lot of the, the revolutionary ideas connected with the, the French Revolution. She and Thomas Paine actually was one of helped her out. Uh, much of his help was quiet because he didn't want to detract from his other efforts. Certainly in the French Revolution and beyond, people think of him as sort of the first socialist, actually. You know, he went from writing common sense in the United States and then just kept going more and more deeper into what we would now call leftism. And actually, so she was very much influenced by him. And you can see that in her work. I mean, he wrote a book called A, a Tract to Defend the French Revolution called The Rights of Man, while she then wrote another piece in response to Edmund Burke, actually, who was writing against the French Revolution. But she it was called The Vindication of the Rights of Man. So she's following up Thomas Paine. And then she writes her kind of magnum opus or what people know her for, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which followed on that. So it her her work follows in many respects a lot of the intellectual threads of the French Revolution. She was very much, you know, Talleyrand was someone that she was involved with, had a relationship with, and and actually I think she dedicated the book to him. So she's deep into that kind of thought. And but in the meantime, she's also she was in Paris during the French Revolution. She had a relationship with an American man. She became pregnant. They never married, but he actually told the U.S. Embassy that she was his wife. And so he, she was actually spared from the guillotine because of her American affiliation. So she had this child, daughter, out of wedlock and moved back to England. And then from there, she ended up meeting again a man that she'd already met through Thomas Paine, a man named William Godwin. 
who was at the forefront of the anarchist movement and the end of monogamy, the free love movement. He just thought marriage was this kind of slavery. And he was kind of known throughout England and France and, you know, in more radical circles and had kind of a celebrity because of it. So she marries him after they get pregnant also. And they have Mary Godwin later Shelley, who was wrote Frankenstein. So what she set forth was really kind of this French revolutionary, you know, crush everything, get rid of patriarchy, get what what I guess you you would call the hierarchy in the church and in the military and all those kinds of things. And she's trying to, you know, kind of create this equality among men and women. And so that's really the, the first spark, you could say, that that set off the movement from there. So yeah, she's a fascinating character. She herself had horrible parents, really incredibly awful example of what men and women should be. And I think that that kind of comes through in her work as well. Um, so yeah, she's a very colorful woman. She died in childbirth, actually, with when Mary Godwin was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the end of her story at that point. And, at that, and after that, of course, the story moves on, a feminism with Mary Godwin Shelley and and Mary Shelley's husband Percy Bysshe Shelley, the poet, the, the well known po- poet who integrated a lot of Mary's ideas. So, how did her ideas then go and translate yeah. into these other things, the, the other things, and and really those waves? First, obviously, starting with the first wave of feminism, right? Uh, yeah. Well, this is where I think it's really interesting because I I think very few people realize that feminism, these three pieces, the occult. Smashing the Patriarchy and Free Love were all came together in the work of Percy Shelley. In his poetry, he was trying to create what he called the women's revolution. So he's taking ideas from Godwin. He's taking ideas from Wollstonecraft, putting them together, adding his own. He had this, I mean, was, this was a barbaric man, actually. He was involved in the occult. There's this whole string of suicides of women that he had seduced, including his wife, committed suicide, his first wife. So he was really an awful man, but this what what, what he saw was kind of the the vision of Mary Shelley's parents, which was you know this women's revolution where there's no monogamy, there's no this marriage, you know all of these things are just erased, and people just live this bucolic life, you know, without any of any reference to their human nature. And he he concocts this actually interestingly around the same time that his wife is writing Frankenstein. He's developed. He develops this character named Sithna, who is basically the the first independent woman in all of literature. She has no husband. She has no children. Uh, the one relationship she does have is to Satan, and this woman becomes kind of the the model in the minds of later feminists in the 1800s, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton. You know, as the movement is is moving forward, so he's the one that kind of put his stamp on it and made it. It, you know, gave people some someone tangible to think about in these very new and radical terms. I'm just so fascinated by this because I, mean, I I have been in the journalism space for for quite a few years, and I've interviewed so many people that that write and talk about feminism. I co-host the Problematic Women podcast. Um, right. I've never heard anyone bring up the the uh, occult roots within the feminist movement. How did you discover this and why why don't people talk about this? Yeah, no, I mean part of it is is it feels old and unimportant. I think that's some mm-hmm. of it. You know, it's eighteen hundreds, who cares? You know, and I, I think we also have this sense of the eighteen hundreds as being a very pristine time, you know, sort of Victorian mores and whatnot. And I you know, I can tell you my research sort of blew all of that out of the water in terms of 
prostitution, abortion, you know, all all this unfaithfulness. I mean, it just was everywhere I looked. But, you know, I, I had already sort of started seeing pieces of it. The one, There's one book that brought a lot of the elements to light uh, for me, when, and I discovered it several years ago, and it's called Satanic Feminism, and it's by a, a Swedish professor. Uh, it was published by Oxford University Press. It's in English. And, you know, it's one of those books that when I first read it, I thought that he was against satanic feminism. And of course, the deeper I get into the footnotes and, you know, references, I'm beginning to realize like, no, he actually thinks this is a positive thing. So it was really fascinating to read because he, he goes through this period of feminism, very first wave feminism, you know, that most people don't touch and is making all of these different connections, you know, incredibly well-researched book. Um, so from there, that that provided me with something of a guideline or, you know, kind of a backbone for my research. But then I was able to dig into primary sources and secondary sources and start, you know, really piecing together the bigger picture of what all this means and, you know, the, the incredible damage connected with all of it. Yeah. So obviously, in our conversation, we're even using those terms, first wave, second wave, third, third wave of feminism. Is that the, the, the right way or, or do you think the most accurate way to talk about feminism? Because I think mentally, we all break it down into first wave feminism, good, yeah. second wave gets a little questionable, third right, wave right. is super yeah. radical. Yeah. Should we be thinking about it differently? Yeah, I think that is actually a really interesting question. I think that, you know, in my own mind, I don't actually separate them up that way anymore, partially because in the 1800s, what you know, the occult is playing a very active role in the 1800s. You've got the, the Great Awakening in the United States. You've got seances. You also really see this connection. People, you know, electricity is happening and the telegram and, you know, all these ways people are connecting with people in long distance fashions. And so, something like a seance doesn't feel so crazy anymore. You know, they're just like these telephone poles between this life and the next. This is what they thought mediums were and mm -hmm. didn't think anything about, you know, having a seance and those kinds of things. So that that's a fascinating part. I think when you get to the 1900s, that the dynamic changes significantly because then you're venturing into communism. You're also venturing into the influence of Nietzsche and existentialism and, you know, all of these long names that I think blur people's eyes over. But, but I think that it fundamentally changed because feminism s started pairing itself easily with communism. Communism was worried about restructuring society and ending, you know, monogamy and the, the, the nuclear family. And they were atheists. So there was really just one piece, this occult piece, this atheist and occult piece that were different between the two movements. And I think that was easily overcome by the two groups, the communists and the feminists. And they realized that they had the same ends in mind and could work together. So I, I think that happens. And then second wave really is just this explosion of what we now know to be the woke movement. You know, it's this, these Frankfurt thinkers that really injected the ideas of the new left and the Frankfurt school into the feminist movement. And you see a lot of overlap. Angela Davis is, is a name that comes up over and over again. In fact, I just read Christopher Rufo's new book, The American Cultural Revolution, I think it's called, mm -hmm. which is excellent. But it was really interesting to see how much Angela Davis played in his trajectory. And, you know, there's overlap, of course, with, with feminism as well. So, uh, and I think everything just spirates out of that. I don't think you have further waves from that. I think it's just all a big mess of, okay. you know, um, and, and answering this question, I mean, maybe the, a better way to sort of bring all these pieces together is to say, the question the early feminists were asking was, how do we make women more like men? And if we look at it through that lens, then all of a sudden sort of the last 200 years make sense. And we see 
you know, they are trying to make us men. And we see that happening biologically now. You know, we can we have the technology to turn our bodies into something that appears more masculine, even though it can never be done thoroughly. But yeah, I think that that kind of bridges these pieces and connects them together in ways that might be difficult to see sometimes. But that fundamental question, I think, is how you can sort of see the tweaking going on. And now even the infighting between those who are for trans and those who are against trans, it's just the the ideology is really turning against itself. Yeah. You write in the book, The End of Woman, that um, feminism, the feminist movement, their failure at its root is a misdiagnosis of what actually ails women. How has the feminist movement misdiagnosed what is ailing women? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I mean, partially because we can see we can see by the, the fruit of it. Um, and I'll go back to giving you an answer in a second. But I want to just point out it hasn't made women happier. It, you know, we see women are more depressed. Suicides are higher. Suicide rates are higher. Divorce rates, even things like STDs, you know, all of these are sort of contributing to that. But the, the solution that feminism has offered is really one, again, back to that idea of making us more like men. Femi- early feminists looked at, at the struggles that women went through. And, you know, believe me, there were obviously there were enormous and awful things that women went through. You know, most women were not that many steps away from destitution or prostitution or, you know, something horrible, ha- starving, horrible things happening to them. So something had to be done. But they're, they're decision was to move in a way that that didn't edify or didn't help women, certainly as mothers, didn't help them become better mothers, didn't help them with their relationships with men. With men. And then, of course, over time, you gradually see this just turn into power, where feminism really becomes a question of, of power and control. And of course, you know, people can't live their lives that way in any kind of happy way when you're busy trying to be, you know, in control and in powerful power over things that you're not meant to be in power of. Furthermore, being told that your husband is your enemy and that your children are your enemy. That's really what what we've ended up with by asking that fundamental question. So mm. rather than saying, how do we help women, you know, bear their children or deal with difficult husbands? It's just the get rid of them. That, that's been really the solution is make us this independent woman that, that Percy Shelley drew out for us where we don't have any of these encumbering details and then we'll be, be really free. I think that's the, the, the message that I keep sending to us. So then, Carrie, if, if the feminist movement was not the answer to the ails of women, how could women have overcome things like you know, uh, having limited options in their career and and the right to vote without the feminist movement was the feminist movement a necessary evil? Yeah, I, and that's another great question. I think, especially in light of the fact that a lot of us feel like we can't question the feminist movement because uh, you feel guilty. You know, I have an advanced degree and I work, and you know, all of those things that I, I obviously feel grateful for. But I think that that the reality is is that the feminist movement actually has taken more from us than it has has given us, because it has just so narrowed who we are. Moreover, I think it, a lot of the things that happened could have happened very easily with like a natural law kind of reasoning. We didn't actually have to completely undo all of Western civilization in order to get these things. And, you know, look at what what the cost has been. I think, you know, especially if we look at the abortion numbers, that I think that piece alone is really the most startling because feminism is so at the heart of 
you know, breaking that bond between mother and child and allowing abortion to be something that's that's conscionable. There are actually more abortions internationally than there are deaths, human deaths for any other cause together. So for like last year, I think there were somewhere around between 60 and 64 million deaths internationally. The Gamaker Institute said there was something around 72 or 73 million abortions last year. So we're actually aborting more people than are actually dying from any other thing in the in the world, which, you know, is astronomical when you think about the ideologies of the past. You know, you think about Hitler, you think about Stalin, Mao, you know, these numbers just eviscerate anything that they had ever did on, on a human scale in terms of, of death. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's another tactic and a, a way to sort of guilt women into thinking that we need to be grateful, and so therefore we can't really look behind the curtain and see what abortion has has done to us and what, what the movement has done to us. Yeah. You obviously address the patriarchy in the book. Your subtitle is How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Now, most women, when they hear that term patriarchy, they their mind sort of goes to the suppression of women. So how did getting rid or attempting to smash the patriarchy how do you argue that that actually is a harm to women? Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, this is another hard thing. I've heard so many people define patriarchy in very, very different terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole side story that goes with that. But I think that the reality is, is that what we've done is belittle men and we have made men, you know, the, the goal, one of the stated goals, especially in the 70s of feminism was to get rid of gender altogether. And a highly effective way of destroying the family and the authority of, of a father in the home was really by destroying the fabric of society. So Kate Millett was a big proponent of this. You know, we need to promote homosexuality, prostitution, promiscuity, you know, all these things that were not, you know, key issues back in the 60s. And now, of course, they're very mainstream. But along with that has come the, the silencing of, of men through feminism. So, again, we see this this power play. But men have a natural set of, of gifts that are, are different than men. And I think that that's what has what's really happened when you set half of a population against the other half of the population. Again, this is where marks come in because men are the, uh, you know, by default, they're male. They are the oppressors. And by default, females are the oppressed. I mean, that's just the terms that they've been working with that most of us are sort of getting in the ether and and sort of have an Mm -hmm. expectation that's how it works by default you know they've done nothing wrong objectively but that's they are just wrong because they're men so that that's i think the the fundamental crux is when you pit the sexes against each other what's really going to happen is is again further breaking of the family further control over society because broken people are much harder control than intact families are. So there's a there's a whole underpinning of, you know, communist ideology, woke ideology, critical theory that's that's running through this that I think a lot of us, you know, we're not familiar with. It's it's it feels very foreign and, you know, we've also been told that uh, ma- you know, masculinity is is toxic. So it, it's hard to sort of parse these things out. And I try to make a lot of that clear in the book to just help women realize like, no, th- this is intentional. And it, this battle of the sexes is, has not helped us because, it, you know, it's, it's creating all these women who, and, and maybe this is one of the saddest things is just the women that I meet who have really followed through on the feminist ideology. And they you know, they get to their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they think, well, I have a lot of money and I have a good career, but 
I'm lonely. I, you know, my parents have died. I don't have children. You know, there's this deep desire to love and be loved. And, you know, it's too late for them to have children. And what, what do we do at this point when, when we've realized like, maybe this wasn't what I should, what I really wanted. Maybe this was not the path I wanted. So those I think are the, the, the really sad stories is, you know, obviously God has a plan for their lives, but it's just harder to figure that out when you get to a point where you've sort of been painted into a corner by an ideology that you didn't realize was going to leave you in this situation. Mm -hmm. Well, you really do such a beautiful job. And I so appreciate that you parse out so much of this so thoroughly in the book, The End of Woman. And you alluded to it just a moment ago, but I, I appreciate and I find it really fascinating how you do explain how the feminist movement has led to so much as far as what we're seeing now with the push of transgenderism and that it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence maybe that we are yeah. where we are. Uh, and I, I really just thought that that was fascinating that you explain, no, this is how we got here. And it's been a long time coming. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a long time coming. And I think, you know, one of the trends that I've been following just as an aside over the years, too, is just even what we're seeing with the, the, the pet craze in our country. We spend $700 million on pet costumes each year. I mean, that, that's just an astounding amount of money. And, I, you know, I think it, what it points to in many respects is that women have this desire to mother someone or something. We even are seeing, you know, pet or plant parents now. And and I, I think, you know, in, in a certain respect, it's very hopeful because it, it means it hasn't been crushed out of us, you know, and not we're not meant to mother just biologically. We're also meant to mother others psychologically and, and spiritually, which means we we nourish them. We provide us a, a place of shelter and protection for people to grow into the, the people that they're meant to be. If you're looking for a more specific definition of motherhood. But but that's one of the byproducts is if we, you know, you take children and grandchildren away from women, then this is not going away. This is something that's sort of part of the core of who we are. And that's, that's where we're seeing it. So yeah, between pets and the, and the trans issue and, you know, all of this incapacity to really even define what a woman is, all, all of these things have been kind of on a slow burn for a long time. And we're just, they finally, you know, we're seeing the real fruits of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the book is The End of Woman how Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. It is out and available on August 15th, but it's available for pre-order. Now you can get it wherever books are sold. But Carrie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we could we could talk for like three hours because there's just so much that you have articulated so well in this book. So I just encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. This is a fascinating read for men and women. So for anyone in your life who's who's interested by this topic, This is a must read. Carrie, thank you for your time and for being with us today. Thanks so much. It's been great to be with you. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell Newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to dailysignal.com slash morningbell subscription or visit dailysignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. Well, it is that time once again this week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And this week, the crown goes to Caitlin Meeks. 
So, Caitlin, for those that uh, that don't know, Caitlin has been the expertise for so much of Problematic Women this summer, behind the scenes, editing the show, recording the show, having to deal with all of our shenanigans <laughs> and make sure that Kristen and I are coherent yeah. and actually sound good, which isn't always easy, Caitlin. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> She's honest. She's very honest. It's important. <laughs> no, but I think it's so cool because literally the reason we have had such a, a great show in the last few weeks. We we always have great support staff, always. Mm-hmm. But Caitlin, you've done such a great job um, this summer just yeah. delivering. And she has all of the logistics down. She is able to give super creative edits. So we, we really thank you for your work. Yeah. Share a little bit about what your internship has, has looked like being here. Both, like, what is it like having to edit Problematic Women? And what are some of the other projects you've been working on? What team have you been on here at the, at the Heritage Foundation? So the team I've been on here is the digital productions team. So a normal day for me usually looked like it was either sometimes doing a podcast or doing an Instagram reel. So some of those reels you would see on social media, those were some of mine, which I'm super proud of because you put a lot of time and commitment and being able to see your own work is the best thing ever. It really is. And knowing people listen to it, even the podcasts, I have thoroughly enjoyed doing a lot of podcasts because I say I learn something new every single day of the week. Yeah. And that is the best feeling in the world. Yeah. That is a really, really good feeling. Well, I I remember I think the very first time you edited Problematic Women and there were no mistakes at all and I was just blown away. I was like, that doesn't happen that the first time someone edits <laughs> our show because there's a lot of moving parts with mm-hmm. Problematic Women. There's music at various times and you know, even though Kristen and I are almost perfect to never yeah, always. ever make mistakes. <laughs> Sometimes we make mistakes. <laughs> and you have to make us sound like we didn't make mistakes. Uh, no, and it's so cool, too, because, like, I'll I'll look at Caitlin sometimes and I'm like, I'm doing this for you. I'm trying, like, so hard to hold on and say this correctly. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, so share a little bit about where you're off to next. So, obviously, I'm going back to school next. I still have two more years. I'm going into my junior year of college. Wow. So I'm actually from a journalism background. Normally, yeah. I'm running around campus trying to get the president or something like that and no one likes me but <laughs> so here it's been a little different because I've been on behind the scenes hmm. normally I'm the face of everything hmm. normally I'm on TV writing the script writing the story being the person kind of in front of everything and being behind everything it shows you perspective hmm. which I have thoroughly enjoyed that part of it too because you can't always be in front of the camera yeah. you can't be always sometimes you need to take a step back and look at other people and see what they're really doing which do you think you like better I don't know. I like a little bit of both Okay. because I like being able to sit back and hear the people's thoughts and things like that and being able to really observe and take them in. Yeah. But I also like being in front, like being able to talk to people when I'm doing interviews and stuff like that. Being on the camera mm-hmm. is the best part of it, too. It can be really fun and mm-hmm. exciting. Oh, yeah, I it can like be. I feel like we're going to see you in a few years, and you're going to be uh, like overseas producing your own show for one of the big <laughs> news outlets. And we're just, I'm going to be like, I know her. <laughs> she used to edit my podcast. <laughs> you never know. Oh, you yeah, you never, never know. know. Well, Caitlin, do you have any advice for other young people who are either going back to their college campuses and they're trying to navigate being a college student as a young conservative? Mm-hmm or are looking for internship opportunities? 
put yourself out there, number one, is sometimes just takes a simple Google search, and you'd be surprised. Tons of mm. things will pop up. Like, I found the Heritage Foundation through a simple Google search. Really? And I was just like, I'm going that. to apply. Yeah, I'm going to see That's what awesome. happens. And I did. And then I ended up here. And it worked out. So, yeah, it did. So, just sometimes put yourself out there. Do the simple things like that. And if you're going back to campus and you're a conservative, hold to your beliefs mm. and hold fast to them. I go to a school that's kind of a mix of both. So I've seen both sides of the aisle a lot. My biggest thing is challenge yourself, really be open to those discussions and put your best foot forward Hmm. and be that positive, kind face people want to see because Mm. an act of kindness can go such a long way Mm. on a campus to someone you don't disagree with. Mm. I love that. So kind of taking this this convo in a a different direction, we're in D.C. right Mm -hmm. now. You're at the Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. We're right by the hill. So two questions kind of the same. What was the most surprising or unexpected thing about D.C. that coming to D.C. has been? Um, And then also working at the Heritage Foundation, I guess. What has been maybe most surprising about being here? Most surprising is just how friendly everybody is. Mm -hmm. I was definitely, like, not expecting that because, you know, I've been in different media things. And some people are, like, it's kind of (laughs) scary just in general. I mean, they're just very vicious and on top of things and Coming here was kind of refreshing, so it was like a nice breath of fresh air. And having people that align with your beliefs, that is super nice. Because in media, a lot of times, like at my school, not everybody's going to agree with me all the time. Mm -hmm. But coming here, it was just so different. Mm. Everybody was just so kind and so nice to me. Even like the interns in the bullpen, we would just sit there and chat sometimes about the most random topics. (laughs) I love it. But it was one of my favorite memories of that. The most surprising thing about D.C., I mean, obviously it's the capital, so it's gorgeous and beautiful and historical in that regard. But I think just I was shocked by the homelessness here, actually. Oh. Like I just walked down the street yep. and all the homelessness. That made me a little sad. I'm like, we're in the nation's capital mm-hmm. and yeah. this is happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's true. It's a major issue in Washington, D.C. Yeah. that uh, COVID really made it even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't used to be this bad, but... Wow. Well, Caitlin, thank you for your work this semester. We couldn't have done this without you. Uh, The team would have been very stressed all the time if it was not for you over the past three months. (laughs) So thank you again for all of your hard work and for for doing work in such a spirit of excellence. We really appreciate your positive attitude throughout this whole semester, your willingness to jump in and tackle whatever we threw at you and we threw a lot at you so oh, good yeah. job <laughs> yeah no it's it's been so wonderful working with you and you really just embody what it is to be a problematic woman you push boundaries you are willing to try anything and and you're just killing it i'm so happy to have met you mm-hmm. oh it was so great to meet you guys it was so wonderful being able to produce this podcast i would look forward to every wednesday after that oh. be like i know oh, today's problematic oh. wednesday oh. i get to finally record one of my favorite podcasts of the week <laughs> oh, that's so funny on on wednesdays we're problematic. That's, yes. That should be our. <laughs> there you go. Instead of we wear pink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Well, with that, we are going to leave it there for today's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. It really does make a difference. That's right. As conservatives, we so need your support in the podcast world. So take a minute, leave us a five star rating and review. Also, make sure that you are checking out both the Daily Signal and Problematic Women Instagram, uh, Daily Signal across all social media platforms because we are going to be bringing so much and posting so much fun content from the Iowa State Fair. I'm so excited. (laughs) It's going to be so fun. (laughs) All right. Have a great rest of your week. Problematic
Catholic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.